I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. I'm the uh, delectable Gary Bain, and you are the uh, unelectable Peter Hart. I've never won an election, but you can vote for me and my book at close range in in a competition. We'll put the details up. What's it called, that competition idea? Book competition. Bookie, book, book, bookie. Right. So well, what we doing? Great, to, that was a great link. That went really well. Yeah, I thought that went well. Well, what, what are we doing today then? Oh, well, I thought I was going to ask you that. Um, However, I do happen to know that we are continuing in our series on the uh, Arras Air War, and uh, today it's the March squalls. Ooh. We've had winter freezing, Ooh. and now we're having the March squalls. And before we, that, we had something else. What was that one called? What's going on? That's right. (laughs) Now, the onset of the staged German retirement from the exposed salient of the Somme battlefields was indeed not good news for the Allies. Why was that? Why? Why? Tell me why. Well, again, it's this old thing people go on and on about how you gain ground. Oh, they only gain so much ground. But actually, now they gain about 30 miles of ground. But it's no use to man the beast, is it? Because uh, because of the unfortunate tactical implications. uh, And also, it entirely buggers up the plans they've got uh, for, for the, the, the Allied spring offensives. So it is a good move by the Germans. It's uh, quite clever. And it just shows once again that ground is not as important as the tactical position. Now, while the generals, they're all standing around scratching their heads and other parts of their body, and uh, they sought to find out exactly what was going on. They sent out ever more reconnaissance aircraft to try and track the German retirement. So... As a direct result of the confusion on the ground, the uh, scale of aerial fighting was ratcheted up until it reached an almost unbearable level of tension. Yeah, I suppose both sides are just frantic. They're desperate to conceal their movements, their their plans, if you like, on the ground. And and they're also at the same time desperate to to discover what their enemy up to. Those bastards, I expect they're thinking to themselves. And, uh, of course, as ever in the air, they're willing to to make sacrifices to, to achieve those objectives because it's more important what happens on the ground. Now, the British, they had the numbers of aircraft backed up by the sheer 
guts and fortitude it would take to succeed. But the Germans, they had superior quality aircraft, didn't they, Peter? And, and, and just as much guts and determination, I think I'd say, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, they, they were determined to extract a heavy price for every single contact patrol, every photograph taken, and every artillery target that was registered. So the poor old Royal Flying Corps are going to suffer as far as the Germans are concerned. Now, um, one way of looking at this, I mean, this, this period's busy, so what we do, what we're going to do is just take one day, one ordinary day. What day should we pick, Gary? What day? What day should we pick? Just at random. How about the 4th of March? No, I don't like that one. All right, 5th of March. No, let's do the 4th of March. I've gone back to it. Okay. Now, so, so uh, it, th th this gives an idea of, of, of uh, what they're doing, the Royal Flying Corps, and uh, all their trials and tribulations, all their adventures, all, the, all, all they suffered as well. Uh, and, uh, and that day, uh, Lieutenant Charles Smart, with his observer, that's Lieutenant Cotton, he takes off on yet another photographic reconnaissance mission. Now, they're in trouble almost straight away, and you're going to be 2nd Lieutenant Charles Smart. He's in 5th Squadron Royal Flying Corps. Archie was simply fierce and started in long before we reached our own front line. They hammered away at us and the whole time we were on the job. Just Mikey. as I got to the far end of it, I'm, I'm carrying on there to stop you saying something inappropriate. <laughs> Just as I got to the far end of our area, which was about six miles over, there was a terrific crump and one seemed to burst about three feet away from my left ear. Several things happened at once. The machine was lifted bodily about 20 feet into the air. A shower of wood splinters flew into my face. Streams of petrol squirted all over me up to the waist. And a cupboard fixed in the pilot seat above my feet fell down onto my left foot and partially jammed the rudder. Bloody hell. <laughs> it's not going well, is it? <laughs> it was quite evident that we were hit. I was frightened to death, but managed to turn off both petrol tanks, switch off the engine and pull out the wireless plug. Archie was still bursting around us. I heaved the machine round and pushed the nose down so that we were doing about 110 miles per hour towards our own lines, expecting every moment that the whole show would catch on fire, for petrol was pouring out of the back tank and I was having a sort of bath in the stuff. Fortunately, we were up a good height about 8,500 feet. So we cleared no man's land at about 2,000 feet, with the Archie Pops getting fainter and fainter as we left them behind. Once over the lines, I had a good look round at the machine and saw that the most serious damage was a large hole in the rear petrol tank. So I decided to come down low and try to start the engine again on the front tank. I dropped down to about 1,000 feet, turned on the front tank, and after some difficulty, got the engine started again all the time in fear and trembling in case the machine should catch fire. I managed to get home and felt much relieved when I dropped the machine in the aerodrome. The wings and tail were pretty well peppered and the machine will be out of commission for several days. The piece of Archie that hit the tank went in about two feet in front of my shirt and about six inches behind the observer's back, quite near enough for both of us. It was the observer's second trip in the air, and he didn't realise that anything had happened to the machine at all. <laughs> it seemed a bit unfair that I should have had all this excitement to myself. The photo photographs came out very well, and showed a lot of new work in the shape of trenches, 
gun emplacements, etc. And that's the point of it all, isn't it? This, this is what we've got to keep on emphasising. There's a reason why they're in the air, and it isn't the air battle, it's the ground battle. Uh, I think that's an absolutely brilliant quote. I really like Charles Smart. He's, he's a fantastic witness to what's going it's very, on. very, very, very exciting. And, and the fact, you know, <laughs> he could have caught fire at any point. And uh, could he have used his parachute, Carrie? No, because they didn't have any. <laughs> now, that same day saw yet another calamity. So it's the, still a 4th of March? Yeah, for the SOP with one and a half strutter, your favourite, of the uh, benighted 43 Squadron during a photographic reconnaissance mission when they ran into Leutnant Carl Emil Schaefer, who was leading a flight from Jaster 11. And you're going to be Leutnant Carl Emil Schaefer. Ooh. That's Richtofen's new Jaster. We had scarcely arrived at the front when a British formation appeared, flying low near <laughs> Loose. We attacked from Overlands. At the same time, three Germans from the Bulka Staffel attacked them. My first opponent eluded me in a steep drive. Before I could follow him, I saw Almenroda being pressed hard by two Englishmen, and I gave him some breathing room. As I did, a single-seater got in behind me. I made a half-loop and went into a spin. Two comrades who saw it thought I had been shot down, as did the pilot, who then left me alone. I squeezed out of that scrape in such a way that I had a measured look at things and then very calmly went after a shop with two-seater. After I fired a hundred shots, it began to burn, then side-slipped down, fell end over end and fluttered downwards, earthwards rather, in a burning heap, whereupon I could not help letting out a loud hurrah. Yeah. Now, another Sopwith pilot, the veteran Captain Jack Scott, already crippled by leg injuries, had a miraculous escape. And uh, I'm going to be Lieutenant Harold Balfour of 43 Squadron. The lucky 43 Squadron, as they were never called. No, uh, relating the story. He limped out of his machine with it riddled from end to end. How he, with his bulk, escaped the bullets, which had even smashed the instrument board and gun sights in front of him is a wonder which I have never solved, either in his case or in other similar cases, where it seems as if a divine providence had allowed the bullets of the enemy to go everywhere except just in that small space which held the pilot's body. Now, Chester 11 hasn't finished with lucky 43 squadron, as no one ever calls them, uh, because in the afternoon, uh, still the 4th of March, Richtofen uh, attacks them. And I'm going to be Lieutenant Alan Dorr, 43 squadron. I take 2pm to 4pm patrol as Balfour has to return to aerodrome with engine trouble. We cross with four Sopwiths and three FE8s. That's a single-seat uh, pusher. Over lens where clouds are thick, my observer signals to me to turn round. I do so just in time to see what I thought to be an FE8, but afterwards proved to be one of our sopwiths going down like a mad thing. Over and over, sideways he fell, the sun glinting on his planes at each revolution until he disappeared like a crazy bird into the clouds. Green is missing as I write. He has gone for certain. And, uh, well, they're dead, dead. Uh, and that's uh, Rick, both men in the sopwith. That's uh, Rick Doffin's 22nd victory now. He's... He's starting to get higher and higher. He's uh, building up his skills. But is it all bad news on the 4th of March? Because this is the point. Is it all bad news, Gary? Is it? 
No, I mean there were a lot of achievements for the uh, Royal Flying Corps that How day. How could that balance those those lives of those gallant lads? Well, there were fifty-two targets dealt with by artillery, uh, sorry, aircraft artillery observation, and one thousand one hundred eighty-seven photographs were taken. And that's the point of it all, Pete. That was the role of the Royal Flying Corps. Now, the German Air Force, that's in turn, they have to prevent these British Army uh, Army Cooperation aircraft from carrying out their duties. However possible, they've got to protect their own reconnaissance aircraft as well. Now, they've got superior aircraft, the Germans. They definitely have. It's not just the, uh, the uh, Albatross, D1, D2, D3. It's the Faltz. There's loads of great aircraft they've got. But, but there is a problem for the Germans. What is that problem? Well, they're badly outnumbered. And they've got little option but to adopt a cautious defensive posture. Now, that allows them to concentrate their numbers and fight only in circumstances that they considered to their advantage. So the skies might appear quite empty of enemy, but when you did meet them, there'd probably be more of them than you, even though overall there's less. Yeah, I see, yeah. Yeah, but even so, it was impossible to completely remove the risks from the mad game of aerial warfare, as in a dogfight, bullets were sprayed liberally in all directions and we've said this before you know there's a certain amount of luck for the aces um, Th- there is there is there really is unaimed random shots could be as deadly as the most calculated point blank burst now so we've got uh, a couple of days later 6th of march ricked off and uh, gets a little more than he's bargaining with when he he attacks another patrol of sop with one and a half strutters uh, 43 squadron again and this time they're being escorted by the FEH remember single um, one, uh, single seater uh, pusher uh, from 40 squadron and you're uh, well, I'm going to be Alan Dore Lieutenant Alan Dore again and uh, more excitement left with six Sopwiths and, and six FE8s for offensive patrol next to Captain Balfour Dodged a good deal to avoid Archie. Second time over, saw eight Hun scouts streaking to cut us off from home, five miles away. Now, one of these things about all these accounts is you always get differences in the numbers that people are talking about. It's every time, Gary, and uh, Rick often is one of these. And uh, he claims to only have four pilots with him, i.e. five in all. And uh, Rick often, you're going to be him. What does he say? Uh, Lieutenant Manfred von Richthofen, Jaster 11. The English flew about like midges. It is not easy to disperse a swarm of machines which fly together in good order. It is impossible for a single machine. It is extremely difficult for several airplanes, particularly if the difference in number is as great as it was in this case. However, one feels such a superiority of the enemy that one does not doubt for a moment of success. The aggressive spirit, the offensive, is the chief thing everywhere in war and the air is no exception. However, the enemy had the same idea. I noticed that at once. As soon as they noticed us, they turned round and attacked us. Now we five had to look sharp. Now soon, the German scouts were in action with the various formations of SOP with one and a half strutters and FE8s, and a wild dogfight filled the skies. And you're once more going to be Lieutenant Alan Dore of 43 Squadron. In a matter of seconds, we were in a general melee of which I can only remember vague instances as in a vivid dream. Dived at one wicked-looking scout with a red fuselage. Gun jammed after a few shots. Again at another. Gun again stopped. Have confused recollections of seeing machines diving absolutely vertically, others stalling and spinning, the whole formation revolving and intermingling, scattering, converging like swallows on the wing. Wow. 
Yeah. Now, accounts of dogfights, they often resemble some kind of surreal dream sequence. The time randomly slowed down and accelerated in utter confusion and total chaos. I, I can go, I can, after I'd had four pints of very strong scrumpy <laughs> cider on New Year's Eve, as I was walking home across Hampstead Heath with my good chums, I fell over in the mud, I didn't, time seemed to collapse, I didn't know where I was, and when I got home I was all muddy. So you spent uh, New Year's Eve on Hampstead Heath with some chums? Yes. Hmm, interesting. Now, it's not surprising that little coherent sense can be made of the various reports that, that survive. Uh, but Lieutenant Annandor goes on to say... A hound scout with a red tail passed over my head, travelling like lightning in the opposite direction and starting a half-loop turn onto my tail. Not for you, dear lad, I thought, and pulled my machine up almost on its back, then kicking over the rudder. I fell over sideways and almost instantly was falling vertically and spinning as I went for, I suppose, 2,000 feet. I pulled out and found I'd shaken off the hun, into which my observer had poured some shots before my manoeuvre precipitated him into the bottom of the machine. <laughs> I can imagine what he would say. Now, Rick Tofford, as was his wont, he held himself ready to pounce on any isolated British aircraft, looking to administer the coup de grace with his customary efficiency. Yeah, this thing, he'd often lead it, lead, lead the attack, because he was the most deadly, and then he would hang above it, looking for a chance. Now, you're going to be Rick Tofford. What does he say? I've watched whether one of the fellows would hurriedly take leave of his colleagues. One of them was stupid enough to depart alone. I could reach him, and I said to myself, That man is lost. Shouting aloud, I went after him. I came up to him, or at least was very near him. He started shooting prematurely, which showed that he was nervous. So I said to myself, Go on shooting, you won't hit me. At that moment, I think I laughed out loud. <laughs> but I soon got a lesson. When I had come to a distance of about 300 feet, I got ready for firing, aimed and gave a few trial shots. In my mind's eye, I saw my enemy dropping. My former excitement was gone. In such a position, one thinks quite calmly and collectedly and weighs the probabilities of hitting and of being hit. Altogether, the fight itself is the least exciting part of the business as a rule. He who gets excited in fighting is sure to make mistakes. He will never get his enemy down. Besides calmness is, after all, a matter of habit. At any rate, in this case, I did not make a mistake. I approached my man up to within 50 yards. I fired some well-aimed shots and thought that I was bound to be successful. That was my idea. But suddenly, I heard a tremendous bang when I had scarcely fired 10 cartridges and presently again something hit my machine. It became clear to me that I had been hit, or rather my machine. At the same time, I noticed a fearful stench of petrol, and I observed that the motor was running uh, slack. The Englishman noticed it too, for he started shooting with redoubled energy while I had to stop. Now, Richtoff, he's got a spray of petrol all around him, and he must have, all that experience, he's seen this happen a hundred times, well, not a hundred times, but you know what I mean, he's seen him a lot, and uh, he's in terrible, terrible danger. Um, so, uh, so, how does he react? Instinctively, I switched off the engine. When one's petrol tank has been holed, and when the infernal liquid is squirting around one's legs, the danger of fire is very great. 
One had in front of one an engine of more than 150 horsepower, which is red hot. If a single drop of petrol should fall on it, the whole machine would be in flames. I had left in the air a thin white cloud. I knew its meaning from my enemies. Its appearance is the first sign of a coming explosion. I was at an altitude of 9,000 feet and had to travel a long distance to get down. I have no idea with what rapidity I went downwards. At any rate, the speed was so great that I could not put my head out of the machine without being pressed back by the rush of air. Now, he's incredibly lucky. He really is. But it's not just luck, is it? No, he's also demonstrating a tremendous amount of skill. He manages to... to, to flattened out and made a successful controlled landing near Henin Leotard. Where's that, Gary? It's near um, Henin uh, Overcoat. <laughs> now, um, the, so so what what what's it, what lessons does Rick Doffin? You're Rick Doffin. What what lessons are you learning from this? Well, from the direct experience of the uh, the perils of being overconfident, he he becomes just it's just one more lesson, isn't it? He, 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 he he adds that to the educational process that would make him the most complete fighting ace of the First World War. So overconfidence, bad. Dangerous, yeah, dangerous. Yeah. And, and you know, they'd almost killed the greatest German ace. But as Richthofen was to prove time and time again, a miss is as good as a mile. He'd, he'd, uh, he'd last uh, another year or so. <laughs> Right, um, now, the, 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 there's one thing I noticed. There's quite a lot of uh, mentions of uh, the red aircraft in accounts of... Uh, more than there were. So what, what is this? Well, there was quite a simple explanation. The other pilots of Jester 11, they, they're completely aware of the risks that Richthofen's decision to fly in an all-red Albatross D3 brought to him. Well, and it's marking him out to his enemies, isn't it? Absolutely. So inspired by their leader, they decide to join him in trailing their metaphorical coats across the uh, Arras sky. Is this like you used to trail your coat across the, uh, the pub? Yeah, not metaphorically. <laughs> now, amongst them was Manfred's younger brother, Leutnant Lothar von Richthofen, who just returned to the squadron in early March. And you're going to be Leutnant Lothar von Richthofen of Jaster 11. We had proven ourselves worthy of the red colour by our many aerial victories. The red colour signified a certain insolence. It attracted attention. Consequently, one really had to perform. Proudly, we, we finally looked at our red birds. My brother's crate was glaring red. That's uh, Manfred. Each of the rest of us had some additional markings in other colours. As we could not see one, one another's faces in the sky, we chose the, these colours as a recognition signals. Schaefer, for example, had his elevator, rudder and most of the back part of the fuselage black. Almond Roder used white. Wolf used green and I had yellow. Each one of us was different in the air and from the ground as well, uh, from, uh, as well as from the enemy's view. No, but 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 from the enemy's view, we all look to be red, as only small parts are painted another colour. So this this sort of makes Richthofen's red appearance seem greater. So he crops. I mean that there are more red aircraft. So therefore, it, this adds to Richthofen's presence over the front, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and many of the, the Royal Flying Corps pilots naturally considered that every single red German aircraft they encountered was flown by the original uh, Le Diable Rouge. What does that mean, Gary? Uh, the Red Devil. <gasps> red Devil? 
We ain't Man United. Now, in the dangerous days of March 1917, many pilots prayed silently for dud weather. Why? Why well, do they want bad weather? Well, that would give them a precious day of safety, a chance to recuperate. But bad weather's also a mixed blessing. Well, that's because it's so important that it has to be really bad before they're uh, allowed off. And and uh, and they've, they've got to try their best to get up. So they might think they're going to get the day off, but they're sent up anyway. Why, why is it so important? Well, just remind me. Why do they have to try their best to fly no matter how dangerous the weather is? Because of the, the, the requirements of the army on the ground, the uh, the losses that would be suffered if they didn't do the job and they didn't identify the uh, artillery batteries um, it would be enormous by yeah. comparison. Every wasted day is just a bonus for the Germans and it would reduce the impact of the of the uh, the all-important British artillery before the first Battle of Arras. And if you missed the first podcast, you need to go back because that's... What this is all about, the the the, the Battle of Arras. Uh, it's it's really important. That's what I said. It is. I was saying it more lovingly. Now I'm going to be, just for a change, Second Lieutenant Horace Borden of Forty Five Squadron. Are they luckier? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Today appears to be a lovely day, but there is a sheet of cloud at about 4,000 feet which makes any photographic or reconnaissance work impossible. I started off as spare man with sea flight reconnaissance at about quarter to seven. Halfway to the lines, one of their men fell out, so I took his place. About five or ten minutes after, as the clouds were seen to be getting worse, the leader fired a coloured light, meaning expedition abandoned. So we all came home again. Yeah, but it was only temporary, because uh, the, the, the photographs are so essential. Uh, it, just, it, it just means that they've got to get it. So next morning, next morning, the very next morning, they have to try again. Doesn't matter what the bloody weather's like. Get up there, take the bloody Well, in photos. fact, I think it's later the same morning. Oh, yeah, sorry, I do apologise. Unreservedly. And I accept magnanimously. He's so nice when we're on a ch- in, in tune with each other's finer feelings. What? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tomorrow I'm going to be second lieutenant Horace Borden. We had to make another attempt at the job that was washed out earlier. This time we only got about half a mile from the aerodrome before all the machines fell out, bar myself and the leader, with various forms of engine trouble. So that was no good. Then it was lunchtime. Then we had another go at 2.30pm. And this time, sorry, 2.20pm. And this time all went well, except that one machine couldn't get off. So of course I, the reserve, had to carry on with the others. It was too bad for photos, but we did a reconnaissance. One hour, 40 minutes. About three quarters of an hour over the line only. Did not see a Hun and did not get a single Archie. But then we flew at 12,500 feet for a great part of the time. And as it was misty, Archie probably could hardly see us. Now, this is another failure because they may have re- done a reconnaissance, but they hadn't got the photos. They'd been ruined by poor visibility. They, you know, it's just unclear. So they're, so they're still going to have to do it again, presumably. Oh, no, all those risks again, again. And uh, it's they've got to keep doing it till they get the right number of photographs could be taken at the appropriate height in conditions of clear visibility, with the correct print exposure of the exact locations required by the staff lo- lo- uh, officers. It's, it must be murder. Anyway, uh, on the ground, the German retreat uh, to the Hindenburg Line. Uh, that's what's going on. Is is. Um, it, it's a difficult operation, uh, but the, the Germans do it brilliantly. They, I mean, we always go on about how brilliant we are at retreating, but the Germans do a good retreat here, don't they? Uh, and uh, they've done a smaller retirement in late February. They, they start to fall back in earnest the 14th of March. Um, so where does this stretch from? Where, where, where are they retreating from and to? Well, from where the British Third Army Front was in the north near Arras, all along the 5th and 4th Army fronts on the Somme, and right into the French sector in the south, where the retreat was carried out in the very area meant to be the focal point of Nivelle's offensive. Now, it's it's a huge area of ground they're surrendering. This is the point we made earlier. Uh, it, it's much bigger than the, they gained in the Somme offensive or, or, or anywhere, but hundreds of square miles are given up. Uh, but but uh, it's... Um, it, it's a really radical manoeuvre, isn't it? Uh, but what, what, what are the British and French troops advancing into? Well, they found that they're advancing into a sort of veritable wasteland where the Germans had systematically destroyed everything of any possible use. The, some 600 French villages were razed to the ground in this manner. Matiel. Their entire infrastructure's ruined. Roads, drains, sewers and water supplies are all left devastated. The, the Germans fell back in carefully planned stages covered by well-sighted machine gun posts that brought death to many an unwary patrol. Now, the, these patrols were usually done by the cavalry. Cavalry are no use in the Great War, Gary, remember? Except when they're useful, that's right. Uh, and they're bloody useful in circumstances like this. But who helps the uh, the cavalry? Who, who can help the cavalry reconnaissance patrols? Well, the, the, the contact and reconnaissance patrols undertaken in the air uh, as often as was physically possible by the Royal Flying So how Corps. would they help? Well, it's their duty to identify precisely how far the, 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 the British cavalry had got, whilst at the same time locating any visible German strongpoints that might threaten their progress. 
Ooh. Now you're going to be Lieutenant J.L. Vatchel of 15 Squadron. Very impersonal. I bet I'm John Leonard. I've no idea what I am. Anyway, here it goes. The Germans had left machine gun nests behind in the ruined villages, and in addition to the physical obstacles, these had a serious delaying effect upon our advance. The squadron, that's uh, the 15th squadron, was given the task of locating these machine gun nests, and it proved very difficult. Villages invariably appeared deserted, but by shutting off the engine and circling down over them, it was often possible to draw fire. Although we had no casualties, the German fire was accurate enough to make the aircraft require a good deal of patching after each flight. But we managed to give Corps headquarters a very fair idea of the progress of the enemy's withdrawal. And I think by dropping messages prevented the cavalry from running into a great number of traps. It's, um, it, 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 this is quite amazing. So basically you fly low and wait, attempt them to shoot at you. Blimey, that's dangerous. Yeah, and often it's extraordinarily difficult to identify exactly who was moving about beneath them in the, the, the midst of such a fluid situation. Well, nobody, nobody's going to make themselves visible to anybody from the air, is there? Um, yeah. No, and, and uh, the, the, the British cavalry and infantry patrols, they're, they're very wary of revealing their positions to the Germans, and of course the Germans concealed themselves as best they could from the British air. They will also be hard at work during this retreat. Well, uh, there was a tremendous amount of work for the British engineers in clearing booby traps and delayed action mines, whilst trying to repair quickly any uh, destruction caused by the retreating So we're Germans. talking about uh, roads have got to be rebuilt, bridges and culverts, that culverts underneath the roads restored, light railways, railways built. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about who else would be suffering? Well, the Royal Artillery, they had a real nightmare because they've got to get the guns forward. Now, with difficulty, the guns could be manhandled forward, but the logistical problems in moving forward, the millions of shells required to feed those guns were enormous. Now, that would really embugger the, the plans and preparations for the Arras Offensive, wouldn't it? Uh, especially in the area to the south of the River Scarp, where, where the, the new, that's where the, the, the Hindenburg line joins with the, the existing German trench systems. Uh, blimey, O'Reilly. So... Um, what what are the German sort of the British scouts are trying to see what's happening? What are the German scouts up to? I suppose they're out looking for prey, aren't they? They are. They're determined to to veil the details of the retreat. So so they're they're very busy. They're, the RFC losses continued to rise, and in in these circumstances, no one could remain unaware of the gradual but steady culling of the crews of the Army Cooperation Corps aircraft. There aren't that many. So That's a horrible word, but it, it's probably really appropriate. It is. And it's not just... It, the, the pressure's on the whole of the Royal Flying Corps. They're flying inadequate machines. They're, they're just the machines they've got. Who's to blame? Well, everybody's to blame in one sense. Uh, um, uh, they're, uh, they're operating at the limits of their mechanical capability. The, the pilots and the observers, how do you think they're feeling? Well, they're, they're stretched, aren't they, to, to the... the their physical and mental limits they're bound to on occasion uh, sort of demonstrate occasionally the underlying strain now certainly it's uppermost in the mind of Lieutenant Leslie Horridge in one of his letters home and you're going to uh, be Lieutenant Leslie Horridge and you might squadron you might remember George Horridge who was at Gallipoli with 1st 5th Lancashire Fuse Days who I interviewed in 1983 or 4 and this is his brother who I didn't interview I think he 
who's dead. Uh, Do you realise I've been out here nearly 10 months now? It does not seem so long to me. Have you noticed the number of RFC casualties lately? I wonder if Walter still thinks the RFC a cushy job. Lots of people used to say it was a cushy job, but they did not transfer all the same. So in other words, the Royal Flanco started to be dangerous. Uh, um, Funnily enough, his brother had a really strong Lancashire accent. And uh, and uh, and Leslie didn't. That's weird, isn't it? Now in his next letter home, Leslie Horridge records the loss of another three aircraft from his flight. So it's a continuous, endless process. Yeah. And uh, you're going to be Captain Bernard Rice. Uh, I think I got these quotes from the, uh, a collection that's at uh, the, um, the the RAF Museum. We ought to pay tribute to the RAF Museum and the Imperial War Museum, who of course have collected all these accounts. Uh, anyway, the, you're going to be Captain Bernard Rice, 8 Squadron RFC. Now he's just returned back from a much needed spot of leave. And, and he too noticed the pace was quickening. Ooh. And he says, Losses have been a bit stiff since I came back. I've attended one double funeral and skipped another. Cheery, isn't it? However, most of these things can be accounted for by inexperience. But the old Hun has been trying hard to keep things private his side while he moves back. He sends a small packet of his scouts over to down one of us and hops back before the patrols can come up. I'm hoping to bag one of the Huns one day. What would you like as a souvenir of him? Isn't this Hun withdrawal astounding? What do they mean by it? Most people seem to think it is a dodge to put off our offensive. Well, it's partly that, but it's partly shortening the line so that they could hold the line with less divisions and have more as a reserve. That's the real reason they're doing it. Now, uh, this is a fraught period, and one really sort of exciting battle in the air occurs when nine FE-2Bs of 25 Squadron, uh, they're they're, uh, accompanied by eight SOP with one-and-a-half strutters of 43 Squadron. Oh, it's not going to be good then, is it, if it's them? And they're sent on a photographic reconnaissance over the Hindenburg line. Uh, Three of the FE-2Bs, have got a, a camera um, uh, now it's not they, 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 none of these are escort machines are they uh, so, so I presume they're going to stay out of trouble are they well <laughs> no as you say they're not they're not really adequate at, at escort and to make matters worse guess where they're going to be flying they're going to fly dangerously close to the Jaster 11 base at Douai that's Richtofen's mob yeah now one of the Sopwiths was flown by Lieutenant Alan Dorr that's who we've me. heard of before commanding sea flight and accompanied by his observer Sergeant Cubberley and you're once more going to be Lieutenant Alan Dorr I'd rather be called Sergeant Clubberley wouldn't you Cubberly. Clubberly. Cubberly. Lubberly. Cubberly. Anyway, you're right. going to be lifting an Allen door. Off at nine o'clock with eight other sopwits to meet nine FE2Bs at Ouchel. We had to photograph Hindenburg Line. Rendezvous at 8,000 feet and when in formation, cross lines at La Basse. Reach Anuilan without interference. A vittery see Huns coming up to us from Douai. We make large circles whilst photographic machines do their work. Meantime, more and more Hun scouts come up and climb above into the sun. Knew we were for it. Archie tries to split up formation, and then the attack begins. Into the maelstrom they begin to dart. I endeavour to keep the others, uh, uh, keep with the others, but the jumble of machines and the risk of colliding separates me. Twice the cracks of my observer's gun warns me that I am being attacked, but always endeavour to keep my nose into the sun so that he approach blindly. They are driven off, hit. Just by me, a blazing wreck falls like a huge fireball. 
one of ours gone. The tangle seems to lessen. The warring airplanes melt away and I find myself alone on our side of the lines watching huge fires and worlds of smoke south of Arras. Does this foretell the retreat of the Germans after their long grip of the French line? On landing find that two of our machines are missing and one observer wounded. Altogether, seven Huns sent down. Seven Huns, Gary! Seven Huns shot down by these brave lads! Yeah, sadly, for one's confidence in British victory claims, the Germans do not appear to have lost any scouts that day. Oh, but in it, it, I mean, the frenetic nature of that battle, you can tell why people get optimistic, don't know what's really happening, is it? Now, in the same fight, Richthofen had struck with his customary deadliness, shooting down the FE-2B of Lieutenant Arthur Baltby and air mechanic Frederick King. And I'm once more going to be Lieutenant Manfred von Richthofen. During the fight, I managed to force a Vickers two-seater to one side and managed to bring it down after firing 800 shots into it in my machine gun fire. The machine lost its op uh, open-work fuselage tail. The occupants were, occupants were both killed. 800 shots, that's a hell of a lot. Yeah, he's obviously having trouble to get it down. Uh, they are quite protected by the, the engine, uh, so I presume he just uh, you know, had a bit of bad luck with it. Now, in mid-March 1917, a rather controversial figure makes his entrance into the Arras skies. Lieutenant William Bishop was born in Canada in 1894, where he enjoyed a lively childhood before being sent to the Royal Military College at Kingston, Ontario in 1912. Hmm. Now here, he fell under a cloud when he was caught cheating in the examinations of May 1914. Oh. But soon afterwards, the time the outbreak of war washed away such disciplinary worries, and he was duly commissioned into the cavalry. Ooh. What happens then to him? Well, he applied for a transfer to the Royal Flying Corps, and he was accepted as an observer in the autumn of 1915, serving with uh, the 21 Squadron on the uh, Western Front in 1916. Now, he's got a spot of sick leave in the UK and in Canada, trains as a pilot, and then posted out to join 60 Squadron on the 17th uh, of March, I think flying Newports then. He has his first real engagement on the 25th of March, uh, and... Uh, um, well, we don't want to get too tangled up in the whole bishop question, do we? So we're, why don't people make their own uh, opinions? I think ours are fair. Mine are, are quite well known anyway. Um, I, I think we'll just take it as his own account. His, uh, his own account sort of doesn't leave much doubt as to what he thinks. He thinks he's a brilliant and natural scout pilot. No, doesn't suffer from false modesty, does he, Bishop? No, and you're going to be Lieutenant William Bishop of 60 Squadron. From the corner of my eye, I spied what I believe to be three... Is that Australian? Yeah. <laughs> there were three enemy machines. <laughs> they were some di distance to the east of us and evidently were on patrol duty to prevent any of our pilots or observers getting too near the rapidly changing German positions. The three strange machines approached us, but our leader continued to fly straight ahead without altering his course to the slightest degree. Soon there were no longer... There was no longer any doubt as to the identity of the three aircraft. They were Huns, with big, black, distinguishing uh, iron crosses on their planes. They evidently were trying to surprise us, and we allowed them to approach, trying all the time to appear as if we'd not seen them. 
Like nearly all of the pilots who come face to face with a Hun in the air for the first time, I could hardly realise that these were real, live, hostile machines. Finally, the three enemy machines got behind us and we slowed down so that they would overtake us all the sooner. When they approached to about 400 yards, we opened out our engines and turned. One of the pilots, as well as myself, had never been in a fight before and we were naturally slower to act than the other two. My first real impression of the engagement was that one of the enemy machines dived down and suddenly came up again and began to shoot at one of our people from the rear. I had a quick impulse and followed it. I flew straight at the attacking machine from a position where he could not see me and opened fire. My tracer bullets that show, bullets that show a spark and a thin trail of smoke as they speed through the air began at once to hit the enemy machine. A moment later, the Hun turned over on his back and seemed to fall out of control. Ooh. Now Bishop, he was horrified when his en engine then flooded with petrol and stopped dead, leaving him with a, an anxious glide home, yeah. just managing to make enough distance to allow him to force land in safety, just literally a few hundred feet behind the British front. Now witnesses reported his claim for a first victim, although the victim has not yet been successfully yeah, identified. Yeah, they did. They, they supported it. Uh, and uh, it, yes, it's the first of many that somehow just coincidentally are never identified. By now, a few days later, on the 31st of March, Bishop and two other pilots were ordered to provide escort cover for a formation of FE-2Bs of 11 Squadron engaged in a, a vital photographic reconnaissance. Now, although he scored a personal success, his description of the action unwittingly underlines the reason why a little friction could sometimes arise between the core aircraft and the scouts detailed to escort them. And you're once more going to be Lieutenant William Bishop. We were assigned to escort and protect six other machines that were going over to get photographs of some German positions about 10 miles behind the frontline trenches. I had my patrol flying about a thousand feet above the photography machines when I saw six enemy single-seater scouts climbing to swoop down upon our photography machines. At the same time, there were two other enemy machines coming from above to engage us. Diving towards the photo photography machines, I managed to frighten off two of the Bosch. Then, looking back, I saw one of my pilots being attacked by one of the two higher Germans who had made for us. This boy, who is now a prisoner of war, had been a schoolmate of mine before the war. Forgetting everything else, I turned back to his assistant. The Hun, who was after him, did not see me coming. I did not fire until I'd approached within a hundred yards. Then I let go. The Hun was evidently surprised. He turned and saw me, but it was too late now. I was on his tail, just above and a little behind him, and at 50 yards I fired a second burst of 20 rounds. This time I saw the bullets going home. I rejoined the photography machines, which unfortunately, in the meantime, had lost one of their number. Oh, would that be because he forgot everything else and just went off? Yeah, he left yeah. them. Uh, I mean, there you go. It's, uh, it's understandable why he did it, but do you think he was right to do it? No, what was all important? It was the uh, f photography machines. They, they, you know, okay, he's, he's there to rescue a fellow scout, but did that have any more serious consequences? It, the, the whole of that uh, mission, the photography mission, could have failed. He was lucky that the, the five remaining FE2Bs do get back with, a, with enough photographs to meet the requirements. Um, now, uh, sadly, there are no reported losses for the Germans that day. It's a bit, bit of a coincidence, isn't it? Uh, and it's interesting that Bishop might have been the victim um, 
that's referred to by Oberleutnant uh, Adolf von Tuchek. Uh, now, he's a, a character as well. He's a, All I'm going to say is he bears uh, some... Him and uh, Bishop have many things in common, including terrible luck when it comes to uh, people supporting or, or, or being able to trace who their victims are. Anyway, you're going to be Abelautnant uh, Adolf von Tuchek, uh, Jasta Bolka. That's Rick Dotton's old squadron uh, and, uh, well, obviously Bolka's old squadron. West of Lenz, at 3,500 metres altitude, I attacked a new port which was close behind an albatross two-seater. Immediately, the Newport let up in his pursuit of the Albatross two-seater, who was going down in a steep glide, and attempted to outclimb Lieutenant Koenig and I, but I managed to get behind him. After 150 shots, the machine suddenly stood on its nose, tumbled over, and went to the ground almost vertically. I observed the impact near the northwest of Luz and saw the debris of the totally wrecked machine laying about as I flew over at 400 metres. Now, equally strangely, there are no reported Newport losses for that day. This is the th- I forgot to say the date earlier, 31st of March. Um, and uh, all, uh, normally German claims aren't allowed that uh, fall behind British lines, but on this occasion, uh, Tuchik's claims supported by a witness statement from uh, Lauten and Koenig and also uh, the personnel of a nearby German uh, uh, anti-aircraft uh, archer unit. And so it was allowed by the uh, German authorities. And Bishop's claim would count as his second victim. Um, now, you can be too dogmatic about these things, can't you? Or perhaps I can be too dogmatic. It's not really your thing, is it? It's, but there is no such thing as certainty. Because in, 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 in this sort of madness of, of, of an aerial dogfight. That well, you tend to allow the claim if there's no reason to disbelieve the officer concerned. Yeah, and uh, so, so, that, so there we go. But Bishop's on his way to what would become uh, one of, one of the, uh, the, the, the uh, most successful pilots uh, that there was on the Western Front, on his way. Uh, now, uh, um, the, the, uh, the f- one interesting thing that, that I, I think this just, just sums up a little bit of what's going on. As they fall back across the uh, the Somme battlefields, how would you feel? What would you do if you were a pilot or an observer in one of the RFC things? You, you've read so much about the Somme. What, what would you like to do? Well, you visit it. You know, they, they actually took the chance to pay a visit to the scenes of the, the death and destruction they'd heard about. So things like Loch Nagar and all this, they're now well behind the, the British lines, so that they're safe to visit. And you just want to see these things, don't you? You yeah. may even have had family or friends fighting these places. So you're going to be uh, our old favourite, Second Lieutenant Charles Smart, 5 Squadron, and uh, he goes to visit. This afternoon, I managed to get a tender and go up to the old lines which the Hun had just vacated. A battlefield is a wonderful but hardly a pretty sight. I went to Gomacourt Park, which had once been uh, one of the stately homes of France, complete with chateaux, gardens, etc. The whole show was now hammered flat and desolation reigned supreme. Our shell fire is truly terrible. The Bosch must have had a fairly rough time in these trenches, for there was not a piece of flat ground anywhere, nothing but shell holes. We had a show here in July last year, which was a failure, and our dead lie about in hundreds in no man's land, a truly horrible sight. 
I wondered what the mothers of these poor chaps would feel like if they could see their sons thrown about in heaps like so much garden rubbish. One and all, officers and men, have been left to rot and form part of the awful trail of death and desolation which is left by this terrible war. Now, the, the reason we've got this quote is because this is a, a real reminder of what the Royal Flying Corps are doing because they are there to prevent things like Gomacore, the Somme attack 1st of July, happening again. Uh, and and the, the sort of corpses lying all over no man's land, it could be more obvious that the consequence if they don't carry out their duty in the air, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, and bear in mind, on the ground, the battle's not even begun yet. In the air, the bitter struggle for control over the Arras skies, it, that reaches a dreadful false peak as March fades away. It's hard-fought nature can be judged by the fact that the British losses in the air that month alone were equal to all of those lost during all. the whole of 1915. Blimey. So the Fokker scourge, uh, nothing compared to this. Um, th th this is this is a real world of pain and suffering inflicted by the albatrosses as our lads try and carry out their duties for the army. That, Absolutely, that's, that's the reason why, isn't it? Yep. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah blah blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pg. MH or visit www.blablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablabl
You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?